What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Deer Vein Podcast. And we are officially out of the Deer Vein Whitetail series. So that was 27. I think we actually did about 29 or 30 episodes just on the early season, the pre-rut, the rut, and the late season. So um, that was really fun. And we've talked very specific about deer hunting and tactics within all those podcasts. So now we're out of that and we're going to be covering um, today. We're looking at mentoring hunters and talking about, you know, hunting, hunting participation dropping. And I got Matt Butler here on, he's an army green beret and he wrote an awesome book um, about essentially, you know, what it means to be a hunter, how we, and how we can, you know, influence others to continue to hunt. And we'll get into, cause there are some staggering numbers that Matt and I were just going over. So, but aside from that, um, we will be, so I got Matt on today and then I will be starting kind of some gear reviews, gear talks, getting people on the podcast, um, just on gear over the next few months so that you guys can start buying. Cause everybody seems to buy in like July and August and they're like, Oh, we're out of stock. So I wanted to get all these gear reviews out early on for everybody and start getting people on here about that so that you can start making your decisions and start buying your stuff so that you're set and ready to go in August rather than trying to slam it in in late September and starting without what you're looking for. So anyway, that'll be that in summer. We got turkey hunting. Um, we definitely are going to do some uh, habitat management stuff. I got a few guys coming on the podcast about that, you know, prepping your property or things you can do on, on public or private land to be better for next year. Um, a lot of it's going to be private land just because you can do so much more habitat management on that. You just, you know, cutting trees and all that. Um, but yeah, just wanted to cover that. So without further ado, Matt, um, how about you introduce yourself a little bit, tell people a little bit about yourself. And then also we can hop into, hop into your book off the bat and sure. then we'll roll into like, um, mentoring hunters over, over the next year or so. Terrific. Yeah. Hey, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on Anthony. I, I really appreciate, uh, us being able to collaborate and, and talk about these topics. Um, a little bit about myself. Uh, well, I, I grew up in Utah, um, a lifelong hunting tradition uh, was, you know, on both sides of the, you know, my family there growing up, my mother, my father side. Uh, deer season was uh, a state holiday, <laughs> basically for us. Uh, and so even, even the non-hunters look forward to deer season, but uh, grew up, uh, definitely grew up in a hunting home. Uh, and joined the military uh, not long after high school. I, I originally enlisted as a, a signal uh, soldier, as an enlisted uh, private in the signal corps. Um, joined so that I could go to college. I mean, it, it was an economical decision. Um, got out, went back to college, thought I would take some ROTC classes to sort of pad my GPA, get some easy A's. <laughs> and uh, turns out I really still liked it. So I went back in the army and ultimately volunteered for uh, special forces training uh, or the Green Berets. So I did 27 total years in the army, uh, 20 of those years as a Green Beret, uh, six deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, 
And it, it was sort of from that experience, I'll just sort of segue into the book. It was sort of from that experience of being in the military that, that the book came about. We were stationed in DC, uh, my family and I. I have three daughters. And, you know, I, I passed on my, my hunting traditions to my daughters, uh, uh, you know, the best I could. I took them hunting. I, uh, there's, there's actually an article right now in uh, the National Wild Turkey Foundation Youth Magazine, Jake's, uh, that my daughter wrote for them. Oh, uh, that's that, awesome. Yeah, she, she kind of uh, talks about one of her experiences where, you know, she would, when she was really young, you know, she'd sit on my lap and would read, uh, you know, the hunting magazines. And I, I'd get to this page in the back where they had all these different photos sent in by different hunters. And I would, you know, I'd make her guess, like, tell me like a quiz, you know, like, and she'd go through like, well, that's a whitetail and that's a turkey and that's a, you know, a Yukon moose or whatever. So she had all of her big game species down probably by the age she was five. But um, <laughs> we, uh, we moved to DC and uh, even though it was difficult to hunt in such an urban area, I still did. And um, one day I come home from work and, you know, my daughter's just, just beside herself. Like she's, tore up like just crying and unconsol unconsolably and i'm you know i'm trying to figure out what's going on and she's she's telling me like you know like dad i you know you're you're such a bad person you're you know you're this mean killer you're a you know you're a i can't believe you 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 know all these terrible things like you know you hate animals and you you're the you're the most evil person on the face of the earth i'm like whoa whoa whoa, whoa. where is this coming from and she's like well you know i i I went to school and I told some of my friends about what we did this weekend. And I mentioned that you went hunting, you know, I mean, DC is kind of a, a liberal place. And so those kind of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so those friends of hers sort of jumped her and uh, started really bullying her and interrogating her and, and help, you know, kind of informing her decisions. Um, and so I thought to myself, well, I'm just going to go on Amazon real quick. I'll buy a book. It'll be here in three days or whatever. I'll read it to her every night. And that'll sort of put that to rest. And yeah, there's, there was no children's book out there that dealt with, you know, I mean, there were some nice books out there. There were a handful, maybe, you know, three or four, but they were sort of like just a happy, good, warm feeling book about like I went hunting with my dad, which is great. But there was nothing out there that said, okay, this is why we hunt. And here's the science behind it. Here's the, you know, here are the ethical reasons for it. Here are the, you know, the, the, the financial reasons for it. And, and gave kids um, knowledge that they could arm themselves with so that next time they got confronted with an anti-hunter, they could say, well, you know, frankly, that's not true. And here's why. And that's what I was looking for. So I had this idea, you know what, I'm, I can't find it, I'll write it. So yeah. I, I wrote it in, you know, that would have been about 2005 that the idea happened. I, I sort of wrote it, or probably, no, excuse me, probably closer to 2002, 2003. And again, like this whole time I'm on active duty. So it wasn't like it was my full-time job. So I, I finally got a finished copy closer to 2007 and eight with illustrations, um, published it, I think in, uh, well, yeah, about seven and eight was the 
first release of the first edition. And uh, the second edition is out now. You can get it um, e-copy or hard copy on Amazon. It's called Billy Goes Hunting. Um, I did, you know, I, I guess I defaulted to a more safe gender when by making it Billy versus my daughter, <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> yeah. She's sort of shy anyway, so I don't think she's missing the notoriety any. But yeah, Billy Goes Hunting uh, on available on Kindle or on at Amazon. Got it. So a couple of things right there real quick is one, just, just for the, for my own editing sake. Um, I don't know if you're moving or not, but can you like stay closer to the microphone? Oh yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, no worries. I I just, I, I know how it is when you're listening to a podcast and you have to turn the volume up and down. Um, but so a couple of things about that. A, I want to ask you about just like, I, I try not to interrupt because I want to hear your full thought. And then I just sit here and type down my, <laughs> my, my questions on the side here is I want to hear about like what it means to be a green beret. Uh, personally, I don't know like a ton about the statuses or the rankings or anything within the military. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I just thank all you guys for your service. I, I really appreciate it. And, and I'm very happy. There's people like you that sacrifice their time and sometimes their lives for us to be able to sit here and have this conversation um, means a lot to me, but, uh, but I'd like to know about that. But then two other things is that like my family growing up, I was not in a hunting family. Mm-hmm. My dad had a shotgun. He had a 20 gauge and a 22. And that was just because those are guns that he had growing up and he mm-hmm. bunny hunted, but that was kind of it. And my mom didn't hunt at all and i actually got into hunting through a friend that i met on the bus on the ride to school and we actually met i remember it like it was the other day because he was best man in my wedding and i was best man in his we were playing pokemon on our game boys and we just met on the bus and then all of a sudden like i went over to his house and his parents were like yeah we hunt and i was like that's cool how does that work you know, and they're like, well, here's a bow, here's some arrows, shoot it, come back, we'll take you out hunting. So then, so then they kind of really introduced me. I talked to my dad, my dad came and that family's been family friends since, you know, we hang out with them all the time. Um, and my mom had no issue with it at all. My sister doesn't have any issue with it at all because my, my mom's family grew up farming. So they're kind of, she's just kind of immune to you know, animal death because <laughs> yeah. it's just, uh, they, they had a lot of cattle. So it's just, it was a way of life. Um, and then my sister really likes the, the lean meat that we get out of it. So she has no issue with it at all. And she actually will show her friends. She has fairly liberal friends, I would say. And she actually talks to them about it and explains why I hunt. And she's like, have you ever had venison jerky? then shut up. Cause you don't even know you're eating a burger right there that I just yeah. served you, you know? So don't come at me with, you know, your brother's a mean, cruel hunter. Right. Um, Cause you're eating meat right now. But then um, one other thing I had there was I never really thought about it, but I did have one girl in middle school that at the time I liked like, I was, I was, I was flirting with her a lot and everything. And I remember her saying to me one day, like, why would you hunt? Just go buy it. 
And I'm, and I remember thinking like, well, I would rather find my own food than, than buy it. And it's just like, I never really thought about that until now. And it's like, you can either, I forget who always says this, but you can either kill it with your credit card or you can kill it with your own arrow. Like it's, it's up to you, but you're going to kill that animal either way. Um, so yeah, those are just a, a couple thoughts there. Um, but can you, can you tell me about the green, like the green beret? Can we jump back to that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so like I said, after, uh, after I became an officer, I volunteered for the, the special forces, the army special forces, or the nickname is the, the green berets. Um, obviously it's because we we wear a distinctive green beret that was actually awarded to us uh, by uh, president john f kennedy so that's a it's actually a military order uh once you've passed all the training you then you are authorized to wear a green beret for the rest of your career um but uh the the army green berets so every branch of service um navy marines uh army we all have our own uh, distinct special operations force or special ops forces. Um, the armies is uh, the Green Berets or the special forces. And uh, there's there's five active duty groups um, and they're all assigned to different geographical areas around the world. We specialize. So I was assigned to third special forces group, which was um, headquartered here at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And our geographical area of emphasis was, uh, at the time, was Africa. And okay. uh, so we also get um, extensive language and cultural training. And I was assigned French. So the concept behind that is uh, that we would be able to be inserted behind enemy lines, uh, be self-sufficient, and uh, be able to speak the language of the natives so that we could carry out our long-term missions covertly behind enemy lines for extended periods of times um it, hey, we, uh, <laughs> yeah that's uh yeah that's pretty wild man yeah it was uh it was you know looking back i i wouldn't change a thing i loved every minute of it um i'll i'll tell you candidly it was you know it's a sacrifice on the family at times oh yeah i'm sure i'm very very sure that's real yeah, for sure. But, um, but I loved what I did. I loved every minute of it. And um, there, there was no finer group of men to be associated with uh, uh, for all of my adult life than, than my brothers in the Green Berets. Uh, so yeah, it was uh, good times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now you're out and retired, correct? I am. I retired in 2017. And uh, I, I'm still supporting the community. I I'm on a contract now working for the Army Special Operations Command, uh, still training uh, special forces officers as they get ready to deploy currently still. So um, before they deploy, um, my organization is one of the last organizations they come through and they validate their procedures with us before we uh, launch them out the door again. So yeah, still gotcha. involved and still in the community and very happy to be so yeah yeah so just out of curiosity like i mean i would i would imagine the the basics of 
the procedures and what you're training them is probably very similar or the ideas and concepts are probably very similar from the time you started to now, but then would, is there a big difference in like technological change for things that you're training for now, or is it mainly just like mindsets and thoughts and concepts and ideas? And no, actually I think um, really the, the philosophies and ideas behind special forces um, are so um, fundamental that those things haven't changed. Those things don't change. Like one of our, okay. you know, we call them the, the soft or special operations forces truths. You know, like one of those truths would be that um, people are more important than hardware. Um, and so that'll remain the same, right? Like sure, yeah. one of our, we, we have very high standards. So for example, you know, one of the, the first step to becoming a Green Beret is that you have to go to what we call selection. Um, and selection is a 20, 24 day um, grueling, just, you know, I mean, it's kicking the gut, uh, kicking the teeth, really. Like it's, you know, it's four hours of sleep a night, constant running or marching or obstacle courses or, um, you know, just completing endless uh, tasks uh, physically and mentally to, you know, to prove that you have the right stuff to, uh, to survive the training. Uh, sure to pass the training so um we started off with uh close to 350 if i remember correctly in my selection class and uh it was just over 60 that um were selected dang so we cut off about 290 uh yeah in those 20 24 days and then then you get invited to go to the Q, what we call the Q course. The Q course lasts about, uh, depending on your specialty, but you know, I, but all that to just simply say that standards are very high. We really believe in the person, not the hardware. But but your point is is um, you're on point though with that, Anthony. That really in the past 20, 21 years um, since nine eleven, we've really accelerated this. You know, a lot of changes within the community. Um, most of them very positive. Um, there has been an advent and a ton of technology um, added to our uh, to our profession. Uh, and, and again, even though you know we put the emphasis on the the person and not the the hardware, so to speak, that doesn't mean that we are uh, against uh, having the tech technological advance. Um, one thing sure. that we always uh, one thing we knew and, and we'll always be able to say is that we own the night, right? Like the, the enemy doesn't have night vision. So if, if you tell me that we have to go into a compound and it's filled with, um, you know, men, women, and children, and there's some terrorists in there, well, we're going to want to go into that compound at two o'clock in the morning um, when everything is dark and, you know, we can see with night vision goggles. Right. So yeah, technology is our friend, but it it's um it, it it's uh it's only a, a means to an end. So yeah, okay. No, and I, I appreciate you hearing me on that side note. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So so you so you wrote this you wrote this book because you know your daughter was was facing some of these adversities within school. Um, how did you handle for anybody out there who has kids or, or is talking about that with coworkers or even, you know, people on their own team? Um, mm -hmm. Like, 
what did what did you have what was the what did your daughter do then you know the next day in school or or how did that play out yeah uh great question so so since the book didn't uh um happen overnight i still took the same approach that i would have taken had the book already existed meaning like i really wanted to give her the facts um you know i, I think too all too often um we we as parents and i'm guilty of this i'm not pointing any fingers but all too often we want to let the television do our babysitting and ultimately that means disney does our educating and there's a little danger in that right because i mean just i mean let's since we're talking about you know we're on a deer podcast let's talk about bambi like that was basically the the crux of of what these other children were saying to my daughter right like right like your dad's basically just a murderer your dad's a deer murderer um and there and i mean that's a that's a very very narrow one-sided understanding of deer hunting um so what i hope to do with the book but didn't have in my hands but what i did do even though the book wasn't written at the time was take the approach where like no i'm gonna actually take the responsibility for educating my daughter. I'm going to give her the information, the facts, take her through all those different layers and dimensions. Because, you know, I mean, in addition to wanting to raise children who were, um, you know, pro hunting and pro gun, I wanted to also raise children who were open-minded and critical thinking. So, you know, I, I wasn't trying to indoctrinate, indoctrinate my child as a hunter. I was trying to give my child a lot of information that she wasn't getting from her friends or from the public schools or from Disney movies. Right. I wanted to give her the other side, the layers and the facts so that she could, you know, I mean, we have to have faith in our kids being able to, you know, um, sort this stuff out in, intuitively inside their own, you know, brains, their own minds and come to the right decisions. So. I spoke to her a lot about the science. I spoke to her a lot about the, you know, what I call the delicate balance of nature, right? Like it, it would be awesome if we didn't have a deer getting, a deer transportation conflict or a deer suburban home conflict. But we've made decisions as a society where we've encroached on their property we've encroached on their feeding we've encroached on their migration we've encroached on their breeding grounds and then complain that there's too many deer in my yard there's too many deer in my suburbs there's too many deer on the road well that delicate balance was upset when we chose to encroach and that's okay. That that's the decision we made, but there's responsibility with that decision. So right. walking my daughter through through that delicate balance. We've taken the nature. We've we've dried up their lands. We've taken their bedding areas. We've taken their eating areas. So now, what should we do? You know, like should we let them starve? Should we let them be hit on the road? Should we let disease run rampant until it kills them? Or can we find a way where we can control herd sizes? so that it's better quality of life for us and for them as well. And if we're going to make that choice, what, how do you think we can achieve that? So I sort of 
So that was my approach really, was trying sure. to give her uh, a much deeper, broader understanding of the problem than, than Disney ever would. <laughs> yeah. Or her, or her friends. Or her peers. Yeah. Right. Peers. Yeah. No. And that, that makes a ton of sense. I, and I appreciate the way you did that. Honestly, uh, you know, I have a two-year-old, I imagine I'll be having this conversation here, you know, in the next five to 10 years with him. And, um, you know, I, I, my work, I, I'm in sales for a living. And the best way to sell anyone anything is to get them to believe it's their own decision mm -hmm. or to get them to come to the conclusion on their own, right? Yeah. And especially with raising a kid or even talking to, to friends or coworkers, it's, you know, sometimes it, it's given them facts and information that's, that's true that they can go to the internet and look up and mm -hmm. double check because, you know, just the, the fact that, you know, a lot of times anti-hunters facts aren't, aren't true. Right. You know, a lot of times they're just spitballing from something they heard or saw well, on Facebook or something. Actually, if I could tap onto that, yeah. actually, I'd say most anti-hunter arguments actually aren't facts. They're, they're generally emotional based, right? They like, are. Yeah. They're almost yeah, always emotional, which yeah. is, which is another big thing because like, you know, if, if you give someone logical information and logical conclusions and they want to regurgitate logical information, logical conclusions to an emotional argument, mm -hmm. that doesn't always work out. Right. You know, because you can't, I mean, no matter what I like, if my wife is pissed at me, it doesn't matter how logical I am. <laughs> no, she's she's going to be pissed, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she's just, it's an emotional, she's upset emotionally for something that that makes total sense to me logically, but for her, it wasn't the right thing to do. Like I threw away one, a pan that she had had for 10 years or something. I don't know. Sorry to my wife. Like, I'm not saying like, she's a kitchen cook or anything like that or throwing away a teddy bear or something. I don't know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so coming, you know, sometimes it's having to come back with that emotional conversation of, well, I, you know, I saw 15 deer get hit and they died and no one even, no one ate them or anything. Mm -hmm. And then they just died for no reason. And people's cars got messed up. So for me, like emotionally, like that tears me up. I would rather have this conservation side of things where I get meat. They don't hit cars as much. People are safer They're and they just have maybe. lower numbers and they die a very, generally most of the time they will die a very quick and painless death they won't even know what happens mm -hmm. versus being left on the side of the road with their spine you know separate. or a broken leg to be torn apart by coyotes yeah yep. you know like that's like coming back at them with an emotional um response sometimes is the most effective way and sometimes like you know, in terms of sales, sometimes people are just unsellable and they dig that when you come back at them like that, they just dig their heels in more. Absolutely. Right. And all, and at that point, you know, I, in my, what I would do is all you can do is just be the best person you can and kill them with kindness so that they can't say anything bad about you besides that you kill animals. Oh no, 100%. Like, and, and frankly, I think that we get, I, I think that we nail this part of the discussion, right? Like, um, of course, there's, there's a bad apple in every barrel, right? Like, I mean, unfortunately, and, and, it, and oh, yeah. it, it drives me crazy. Like when on some of the Facebook groups I'm on po post pictures and 
some poacher's been caught like that like that person i just i don't even have words to express how um much that tears me up right and and there'll be those in, in every group you can't but i think by and large and i mean very large like i think way into the 90s percentile most hunters are super ethical people and the way mm -hmm. they you know i mean i love seeing again on facebook i love seeing the pictures where someone will post a picture of a, a buck and you know it might have its uh, vitals partially covered by a limb and people want to ask about what you know shot placement and almost all the comments on there are usually tend to someone saying you know like yeah like this is a totally unethical shot and you know it was a good it was a good exercise for us to go through and but you know like we that's in that seems pretty ingrained in all of our minds as 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 a hunting community and so you're you're absolutely right like um yeah, I think sometimes in those conversations, it becomes like a dick measuring competition for who's more ethical. Yeah, yeah. You know, true. you read through those comments sometimes. <laughs> and I'm not like, I'm not a big commenter, but I'll read them mm -hmm. and I won't do anything. And it's just like, why are you guys so concerned about, you know, whether he was quartering away at 45 degrees or like 70 okay. degrees? And yeah. oh, I, I wouldn't have taken that shot. I wouldn't have taken that shot. You know, and it's just, it's kind of one of those things that it's like, dude, that the dude took the shot, he knows or she knows whether or not in their own head. That's a great point. If that yeah, was like, an ethical shot or not. Yeah. And, and, and what, what might be an ethical shot for, or, you know, for you may not be an ethical shot for me. Right. Cause you right. might have a better skill level. I mean, exactly. Yeah. I, I, yeah. There's tons of videos on YouTube where guys are taking shots seven eight a thousand yards and you know i mean frankly i was taught like you know like you, you probably 300 year limit but then again that's when i was a child and you know now i've been to sniper school and now i'm shooting a much better you know r rifle with much better ballistics and much better optics and so what was unethical you know 30 years ago may not be ethical or might be ethical now so you're right that's an individual call I, yeah. In, in my own experience this year, I went elk hunting. Mm -hmm. Um, my friends that live out in Colorado, they regularly are shooting a hundred yards. Like they have no issue being at the range, launching arrows at a hundred yards mm -hmm. for me at my house, like behind my house, the furthest I can really get is 70. And a lot of my whitetail hunting scenarios, I'm not even like, I don't even have shooting lanes past 30. Mm -hmm. So yeah you know, I'm a tight quarters kind of guy and I, and I shot out to 70. Um, but by far and large, like I would, I was willing to shoot out to 50 at an, at an elk when I was out there, 50, 55, mm -hmm. maybe 60. If it's just standing there feeding, not doing anything and has no idea I'm there and I have all the time in the world. Um, but that was like my limit, you know? And, uh, and we get out there and I get in a scenario where there was a cow elk standing kind of alert, kind of not at 73 yards. And my buddy's looking at me like, dude, shoot that. And I'm like, ah, I'm not confident in that. He's like, shoot it. And I'm like, ah, dude, I'm not, I'm just not, I'm not confident in it. He's like, then move. I'm going to shoot it, <laughs> you know? And by the time I moved over and he took my spot in the, in the lane that I had, 
that cow had moved off and he kind of looked at me he's like dude if that is our last chance of this entire trip i am yeah. gonna be so <laughs> and i was like dude i'm i'm sorry i'm just i'm not confident in that and and you know like on to be honest with you man two years ago three years ago i would have taken that shot just from the peer from purely from the peer pressure yeah you know, of let it, let it go, dude, just do it, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's, I don't, I'm not very, I don't get proud of myself very often, but just telling that story right now, I'm glad that I said, you know, Hey man, I'm just, I'm not confident in that. I'm not going to take that shot. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, you know, and it's, it, you know, and a lot of times people are subject to that peer pressure, even with own the, in their own friend groups. And I'm not saying my buddy is a bad dude by any means, cause he's, He's like, how are you not capable at 70 yards? Sure. You know, and I'm looking at him like, how are you yeah, capable? <laughs> it's 30 yards under his max. So it's well within his window. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So no, yeah, that's a very good point is what is ethical to you is not, might not be ethical to others and, and vice versa. And I think, I think people, people have a hard time on, on, there's so many things wrong with Facebook and Instagram and social media, mm -hmm. but people have a hard time really putting themselves in someone else's shoes and judging people before they know the scenario. Yeah. You know, like, I, you know, it's, it's different if a guy's, you know, like, Hey, I took a quartering away shot at 40, 45 yards. And it was a, or a quartering towards shot 45 yards on a white tail. It was a hard shot. I had to slot it between kind of the throat and the front shoulder to punch the lungs. And I did. And that deer died in 30 yards. Another dude looks at him and is like, dude, that's so unethical. The margin of error is so slim. Like you're a P you're a piece of shit. Like you shouldn't be hunting at all. You should never take that shot. And maybe that guy comes back and goes, well, I've been a tournament professional shooter for the last 30 <laughs> years and I can hit a quarter at 70 yards. So yeah. bite me. Yeah. 19 out of 20 times. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of one of those things like you don't know the scenario. So how can you judge? Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, I, so those, those emotional, those emotional conversations versus logical conversations. And that's, I mean, that can be ethical very much so as well. You mentioned um, like financial, you know, you mentioned um, like conservation aspects, financial aspects of, of having those conversations with other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, oh, sorry. Did I cut you off? No, 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 no. I was, nope. I was going to say, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's so many, again, there's so many dimensions to, to the hunting, the, the question of hunting, right? Like um, it's not, it's not just a, I think that too often anti-hunters want to assume that it's, it's a bloodthirsty sport, right? Like that, that you're, you're, we have some sort of primal cat, caveman urge in our DNA that, that hunters have to go out and kill things. Um, but no, it, it, there's all these different layers, right? So, so the financial layer of it, like uh, some of my favorite new hunters, when we start talking about people who are new to hunting, um, are single mothers, like women is one of women are one of the fastest growing demographics in hunting, and single mother mothers who figured out that one of the best ways to put protein on the table is hunting. It's one of the cheapest forms of meat. I mean, especially with what we've seen in the past year with uh, with COVID nineteen, yeah. 
choking up the, you know, like I have so many friends who own farms and ranches back West, back in Utah. Right. And they'll tell you it's, there's not, there's not a problem with the amount of beef being produced. The amount of beef being produced has always been produced. The reason that you're paying, you know, eight, nine, $12 a pound or more for steaks and, and some burger, some cuts is because it's a supply chain problem, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in some states where, you know, you can harvest six deer. Um, and if you're a single mother, especially like in the example you gave me earlier, when we were talking about family, you know, like let's say someone in your, you come from a farming family and you have access to land and you can put a lot of protein on the table relatively inexpensively. So, you know, there's a financial aspect to it. Um, yeah. We talked, we talked about um, one of the other ones for me is you, you use the phrase talking about, um, you know, whether you use a gun or a credit card, you still <laughs> took the life of an animal. Yeah. Well, well, to me, when you, when you run that, that card and when you step up to the, to the butcher counter at your local supermarket, you're basically, you know, you're contracting an assassin to go and do your work for you. Um, right. When you're, a, when you're a hunter, you're taking an active and deliberate um, step to be part, to be actively part of the food chain. Not, not just the person that sits at the top of the food pyramid, but you're now part of the food chain, right? Like in terms of predator and, and uh, in some areas, even when you're out hunting, you, you uh, are the prey while you, so, I mean, you are, it's a more active, more thoughtful, more present, conscious part of the food chain that you're already in. I mean, we're all in the food chain, unless you can, you know, I don't know anybody who's not eating these days. So, (laughs) so as long as you're eating, this is, you know, this is one of the ways that you can be more actively engaged in that process than any other that I can think of. Yeah. No. And I like just to put some numbers to that financial aspect of it, you know, um, like a whitetail tag in Wisconsin for me, I live in Wisconsin is 25 bucks. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, it's 25 bucks. And depending on what County you set up for, um, you can get, essentially unlimited doe tags and some of them are limited doe tags and you can buy an extra for i think like seven dollars so just just looking at like the county that i hunt in or that our land is in i get a buck tag and then i get three doe tags for my bow so that in general like if i shot a decent buck let's just call it um it's like a i don't know a dress 200 pound buck um, you're talking about like 70 to hundred pounds of meat off of it. Yep. And then for a dough, you know, a big dough, you're talking another 50 pounds. Let's just on, on the low side, 50 pounds for three doughs. So that's 150 pounds plus 70 for, um, the buck. So you're at 220 pounds. And if you ran that just at straight burger that's not that we're not even considering the fact that there's tenderloins in there and there's all these other steaks that are a higher rate just burger at six bucks a pound at 220 pounds what is that 1240 bucks right there just burger you know and if you started throwing tenderloins by the pound and backstrap by the pound i mean you're talking a fifteen hundred dollar sixteen hundred dollar investment for 20 bucks and some time in some in your in your equipment 
you know, exactly. Um, yeah. And even, and even like out of state, you know, gosh, I shot that elk. It cost me 600 bucks to get a tag in Colorado, mm -hmm. but I pulled a hundred and it was 160 pounds off that elk. And I mean, if you were to go try to buy elk from a farm, Oh, yeah. 160 pounds. I mean, I'm sure they're charging you 15 to 20 pounds, 15 More. to 20 bucks a pound for that stuff for organic elk. Like, I mean, come on. Right. Right. I mean, and I think Wyoming is actually 300. Yes. 300 for a tag? For the tag. Yeah. $300 for a Wyoming F state tag. Maybe. I'm, yeah. I, maybe that's a cow only. I thought it was like a thousand. I've been looking at Wyoming. Mm -hmm. But anyway. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're talking, I mean, there's a lot of money in that for, mm -hmm. and not to mention, you don't need to go to the grocery store to buy meat for the next, you know, eight yeah. months, nine months, 10 months, depending on how big your family is. Yep. Um, so that's just a, a little financial aspect to it. You know, that is always like, especially tight times where people are losing their jobs and, and in COVID's can be you know a, a huge issue for people that live in the city like mm -hmm. for somebody in the city to be like why are you killing animals and you'd be like well i spent 20 bucks and i got you know 1200 pounds of meat or 1200 worth of meat so i mean it's pretty good investment yeah. <laughs> let's let's talk about another aspect of that too um sort of segueing into what i think is sort of another one of the huge benefits that we've sort of mentioned here a couple times and that is the health benefit right like yeah so when we talk about hunting numbers and and i'm just gonna i'm gonna preface this and, and sort of take a step back if that's okay and sort of talk about hunting numbers and then sort of set please do go okay. get them so um right now um hunting numbers there's 30 it's roughly 30 percent i've heard numbers as high as 33 percent but somewhere between 30 and 33 percent of hunters are um, baby boomers, okay? So when you start doing the math on that, what that's what's that saying is that we're basically gonna lose 33% of our hunters in the next probably 10, 15 years max. Um, so that's that to me is pretty pretty desperate, pretty um, scary, if I yeah. can, can say. Um, and and so. So a lot of this conversation that I, a lot of the conversations I have are around those numbers and talking about how to increase them. So we, we spoke, we spoke about women being the largest growing, you know, uh, one of the largest Segment, growing yeah. Yeah, segments, but what, what the other studies have shown is that the largest segment most likely to take up hunting is millennials, believe it or not. It's, it's, it's the kids in skinny jeans and gauge <laughs> earrings and, and, uh, and I, and I appreciate the chuckle because you're confirming what, what a lot of us are thinking, like, like you're thinking like, no way, like that those kids, why would those kids want to hunt? No, I laugh, I laugh because I have two cousins that are like that. And both of them started hunting within the last couple of years. Yeah. And it's hilarious to see them, you know, roll up in their in their cars and get out in their skinny jeans and put on camo. Yeah. It's just, 
it's I shouldn't say it's hilarious. It's just different. Like I don't, it it doesn't, yeah, they, they don't go together in my head, but I'm happy they are. Well, let's talk about those reasons why. And and this was, and so all, you know, I took the long way around the barn here, but, but this is the other thing that, that hunting is offering so many people and why I believe that they will, will, will take it up or will want to, if we can share it with them. And that is, it's the, it's the quality of the protein. We talked about the economic aspect of the protein, but you're absolutely right. When you talk about tender, lean cuts of meat, when you talk about organic, when you talk about non-GMO, and we all know what a, what a hot topic farm to table is. Well, now we're, now we're forest to table, same, same principle, right? You're, you're basically, and these, these are all the things like if you, if you, offered a millennial like hey we can go you know we can go get loaded nachos at applebee's or we can go to this you know bistro pub where they're serving farm to table locally sourced non-gmo organic quinoa where do you think the millennial is going to want to go right yeah yeah yeah, for sure so so my point being is that that hunting checks off all those blocks for a millennial that they're looking for in their food sources. Mm-hmm. So I think, so there's the, there's the financial reasons, there's the ethical reasons, there's the conservation reasons. And to me, there's the, the, the health aspects. Yeah. To, to no, and I, I, I fully agree with, you know, one of the things that I want to personally get better at in 2021 in and beyond in life is, is supporting my value sets. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I, you know, it's obviously I'm, I'm, I'm a second amendment guy. I, I, I value that. So I don't want to go shopping at places that are adamant against the second amendment or Experience. something in, of that nature. You know, I don't want to, if I don't want to, obviously I, I'm a hunter. I'm a deer hunter. I don't want to go to a store that's run by somebody at somebody from PETA. Right. right? Like I want to support the people that, that support what I believe in. Amen. And um, yeah. And in with, I forget where I was going with this. Damn, it was, it was going right. to be good. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I just like with those millennials, I think, I think that the, they're, they're, they're moving to, they're like a new type of like green type of person, but they have like kind of like an environmentalist and, and hunters and environmentalists haven't always got along because different, totally different topics and not because of hunting at all. Um, but just generally like, I, I feel that that gap is closing a lot and I see it honestly with backcountry hunters and anglers, BHA. Yep. Um, I go to these like pint nights and half the guys there, not even half, maybe like 10 to 30% are like, you know, you're, you're, you're more hardcore, grew up hunting, grew up fishing. Like I know exactly what I'm doing in the woods. I have great field craft, you know, and I'm, and I'm out there doing my thing. And then 70% of these people are people who are there to try some good beer and they hunt a couple times a year and but they like they're they're not there for antlers they're not there for the biggest turkey beard 
they're there to put a clean piece of meat on the table Absolutely. for their friends and family to be like, I, I, and they're proud of it too, which is really cool that, you know, it's just like, I'm proud that I went out there and I went in the woods and I killed this turkey and now I made it and I'm feeding it to you. This is, this was wild two days ago. Yep. 100%. That's you the, know. that's that being in the, that, that's that being in the food chain deliberately and actively that I was talking about. 100%. Right. Right. Like, like, I don't, it's hard, it's hard for me to explain to a, to a non-hunter or especially an anti-hunter, the, the reverence that comes over you, you know, when, when you harvest or kill an animal, right? Like, yeah. um, it, it's a special feeling. It's not, it, you know, I, I think that in their mind and what they would have, you know, at the time, my daughter and others believe with their, with their emotional, um, methods, is, you know, like to, they paint some sort of image about, you know, like killing the deer and ripping its heart out and taking a bite and, you know, all this, this craziness. And I know there's, you know, there's, I know there's people who, you know, put a, a streak of blood on their face or whatever on a first kill. And that I'm not disparaging that, but I'm saying it's, it's not a blood, it's not a bloodthirsty sport. It's a, it, it, it in fact, the emotion that you feel it's to me, when I harvest an animal, when I kill an animal, there's a, there's a, a well of emotions, right? Like there's, there's a little bit of sorrow for the loss of life. There's pride in having been able to achieve that. There's thankfulness in all the things that had to line up. There's gratitude that this animal sacrifice is part of my food chain mm -hmm. and, and will feed my family. So there's, there's, there's this incredible feeling that comes from that. Yeah. Um, so, you yeah. know, the, the, the thing that always gets me is there are very, very few things that cause me to lose sleep at night mm -hmm. and a gut shot deer. I won't sleep a wink. Nope. I like, if I end up, you know, killing, shooting a deer in a poor spot like that, that eats me alive. And, and that's like the, that connection of being, you know, with that animal and, and, and the verification that it's not just let's wound shit and make shit feel pain. Right. Right. And right. that's not, that's not what it's about. You know, every time I, I loose an arrow or, or pull the trigger and I hit an animal, I, one of my first thoughts is, is that a good shot? Please die quick. Please right. die quick. Please die quick. Humane. You know, yeah. And, and yeah, and I, and like you said, 90% of hunters, 95% of hunters out there think that same way, you know, cause I, obviously we want the animal to be dead because we shot it, right. but two, we don't want it to suffer. I mean, that is like, man, I, I just can't, you know, I hit a deer, I don't know, four or five years ago and with, with my wife in the car on the way to work out and I had to get out and stab it to kill it because I didn't have my sidearm with me and, and my wife was freaking out and it had a broken leg and I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. Right. I was like, well, I know you're going to die because your legs, your bones sticking out of your, you know, your side right now. So, yeah. yeah so, you know, but it's like, it, it's a hard thing. That was, that was a, a really strange emotion right there, you know, killing a deer while you're holding it down and it's struggling. Yeah. But at the same time, it would have, I know in my heart of heart, it would have had a much more painful death had I absolutely. just left. Yeah, absolutely. 
you know yeah. um so anyway that's yeah that was just kind of a, a segue but yeah the 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 ethicalness of hunters to to want that animal you know to die quick and not have it be this blood sport that people right. somehow make it out to be and and i can see how people do that based on some social media posts and some people that are out there and and thankfully you know most of the community says yeah those are bad eggs we don't want them anyway yeah you know and and a lot of the people in the community are the first ones to go hell yeah they got that poacher yeah you know oh yeah and and every hunter I know will be the first one to turn your ass in if you are a poacher, you know, like, yeah, it, it's not like we're going to cover your, you know, for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're not in this together, man. If you're, yeah. <laughs> if you're, if you got one buck tag and you shot four, yeah, yeah. no, or, that's not cool. And, and like you said, I think, I think by and large, most, most deer hunters are, are meat hunters. I mean, not to say that if, you know, if a 155 class, you know, deer walked in front of us, um, you know, we wouldn't shoot it or we wouldn't be, you know, thrilled beyond belief to shoot it. Of course we will. But by, by and large, I think most of us hunt, you know, for the experience, for the sport, for the, um, for the meat, um, mm -hmm. you know, but if, if you are one of those hunters and you do have 155, 170 class deer and you, you know, you got a poacher in your neighborhood, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Who's gonna Who's gonna hang that guy first, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Like no, play play by the rules, man. Right. Yeah. I had one. Uh, I had one buddy. We were up at his hunting cabin once, and uh, and in Wisconsin, it's legal to shine so long as you don't have uh, weapons in the car. And I think it's before 10 p.m. Can't remember. Mm -hmm. It was it was years and years ago. But I remember we were driving around and um, we shined up a few deer, and they like instantly you know, took off. And one of them was a good buck. And I was like, and this was, this had happened multiple times in the same night. So like we shine up some deer, we're like, Oh yeah, there's a couple does, you know, and they just take off instantly. And then we keep going and then we shine up a small buck takes off instantly, blah, blah, blah. And, and I, and eventually I'm like, man, I thought to my buddy, I was like, I thought that, you know, essentially deer are supposed to stand still in the headlights. Yeah. And he goes, yeah. Oh no, they've been shot at a few times around here. Yeah. <laughs> I it never even crossed my mind until yeah. he said that. I was like, oh, okay. So yeah, there must be poachers around here and people that just don't give a shit. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, because we were, I mean, there's I don't even think there was a police station in the town that was closest to us, and that was 15 minutes away. It's probably like 30 minutes, 40 minutes to a cop shop. Yeah. You know um yeah it's just an interesting it's an interesting different different perspective on things yeah so so can we talk a little bit about introducing um uh hunters to uh non-hunters yeah. to hunting yeah 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 I, I appreciate you taking the reins on this podcast man <laughs> <laughs> uh, i uh yeah i just wanted to sort of circle back to that topic so as I was saying, the, the largest segment of, um, of people who are most likely to take up hunting are, are millennials. And, and generally when I tell people that, like, you know, they're, yeah, like their first thought is, you know, some kid in, in skinny jeans and, you know, gauge earrings and whatnot. And 
And I think that a lot of time we think, well, geez, you know, like I might know a kid at work who would fall into that group, but I don't, you know, I don't know how to approach him. And what I'm, what I say is like, actually, I think that you're making it too hard. I think it's in your family. I think you have family, whether it's, you know, your cousin's kids or, you know, uh, uh, a second cousin, a distant cousin, an aunt, somebody like that who has children that are falling into that, that bracket of that like 16 to 25 age group who would be most, um, most likely and easier for you to approach, right? Because you already yeah. have a relationship with them. You don't have to try to strike up a conversation with some kid at the copy or at work that you barely know, you know, right. you, you actually know, you know, you, so you got your family. I think that that's really where we start. And, and so kind of what I try to challenge people to do, you know, when we, when we start talking about that 30% of hunters that we lose, and, and that's, that's 5 million hunters over the next 10 years that we're losing. But, you know, some of the steps that I like to, to, Tell, well, first of all, I try to invite everybody to do that. Like just one hunter, if you could just bring one hunter into the fold, you know, in the next couple of years, because I don't believe it's an overnight process. It's not, it's not as simple as inviting that person to go hunting, you know, and, and then you dump all the bad stuff on them, right? Like, no, like, listen, we got to be there. We got to be walking into our stands before light. So we got to be, you know, buttoned up at the truck by 530. So it's a half hour drive. So, and we're going to probably want to stop. So I'm going to pick you up at 430. <laughs> so you need to be up and dressed and ready to go when I pull up to your house at 430 AM. And it's going to be, you know, on a late November day. So it's going to be below 30 and like, right. Like you have gear for that, right? Yeah, okay, exactly. Good. Yeah, you got <laughs> blue jeans, right? Cotton, they're wearing <laughs> cotton. Um, no, like I, I think that there's, yeah, cotton and tennis shoes. I think there's, there's a better way to go about that. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I really like the approach, you know, where it's kind of the, you know, in the army, we call it the crawl, walk, run, right? Like the, the, the first time you throw a grenade isn't, you know, like the first day you see one, right? Like you practice with dummy grenades, you're yeah. in the crawl phase, then you got dummy grenades that have just the fuse in them that's the walk phase and then once you've kind of mastered those basics then we're going to step you up to the real grenades that's the run phase it's the same right. thing that i say in this right like like don't pick up your your cousin's kid at 4 30 in the morning on a day that it's gonna you know barely break over 32 and he doesn't have the hunting gear and expect him to sit in a tree stand all day that kid will never ever ever hunt again um, right. So start him off at the crawl stage. If there's, you know, if you could pick him up one night, you know, and just, you know, even if it's a night, like you said, like, I love the idea that you get three doe tags. If you could bring him into a, a tree stand at, in the evening when it's a little bit warmer, maybe more like a September or early October night and, and let him harvest a doe that, you know, as his first experience. Right. or turkey hunting, or even like you talked about bunny, you know, rabbit hunting is a great start too. Uh, you know, so any of those sort of like small intermediate steps and the other, and that's the other great statistic to keep in mind is it does take generally somewhere in the neighborhood of three years for them to really get to a place where 
they're beginning to figure it out enough that they, you know, that they've stopped asking you questions. They've stopped peppering you with questions. Yeah. They found their own resources uh, for information. They're working on the craft their own. And you can sort of like what I would say, you're taking the training wheels off and now you have a true hunter versus somebody who might walk away from it, you know? If, if right. Yeah. No, man, I, I definitely agree. And, and it's something that, so I'm involved in the Wisconsin BHA and, um, and we have a, a mentoring program that we run. And one of the big things is, is you need to make that first experience for them, whether, whether it's your, like you said, it's your cousin or a friend or what have you, you need to make that experience for them enjoyable and the enjoyable factor doesn't have to be killing, killing the animal. Exactly. You know, the enjoyable factor can be, man, just seeing deer, just seeing turkeys, just seeing, you know, like, heck, we have bobcats on our property. If they just saw a bobcat, like that would be an experience that they'll probably never have again in their life. Yep. You know, um, and it's, and I, and I've seen it before you, we all have friends that need to be the badass, right? They need to be the badass in the scenario. And those are the people that you do not want taking a first time hunter out because they're the ones who are going to pick the worst day of the year at the worst time and make them sit through a miserable time and be like, yeah, that's hardcore, isn't it? And they'll be like, yeah, I'm not doing that again. Thanks very much. (laughs) You know? So like, yeah, my, (laughs) to your point, um, my, my best piece of advice is, you know, after, if, you know, the engagement part is the, is the hard piece. And in my thing for that is, is, is just don't be afraid to talk about hunting around them. If you know that they're, they're not a non-hunter or anti-hunter, whatever it is, you know, be like, Oh, do you, do you hunt? Yeah. Or if they're like, Hey, you know, a lot of times the question comes up, what are you up to this weekend? Mm -hmm. So I started a new job this year. And I have no idea how any of my coworkers feel about this. And they all kind of asked me and, and like my pretty much October to December, like every weekend I hunt and, and they found out real quick that that is the case because I, I just say, Oh yeah. You know, um, they'll ask me and I'll say something along the lines of, yeah, you know, we have some property. Um, my family's pretty, pretty big into organic meat. Um, we like the healthy lifestyle of it. So I, I hunt a lot. Um, and that's kind of how I break the ice. I know it's right. not like a hundred percent, the truth we are into organic meat, but yeah, I want, I want some good antlers on the wall. I want a mature age class deer. I want to, I want to experience the chess match that it is to, to find these deer and outmaneuver them and beat them in their own, you know, environment. But, but it is, I do want that. And that is the easiest way to break down that wall right off the bat for me, at least that's what I've used. And, and everybody, no one else on my team hunts on my work team, except for, well, there's what, 20 of us and two of them hunt besides me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and everybody's fully accepting of it. No yeah. one, no one has talked to me anything poorly about it because I've kind of introduced it as a way to get organic lean meat that they have to spend you know, $15 a pound on in their, in their area. Um, so that's, that's my way of doing it. And then also I've taken a few other, a few new hunters out and 
in the worst, the worst experience I had with someone and I feel terrible about it was we got out there and then it started to rain and then it started to sleet and then it started to snow all within like (laughs) half hour, 45 minutes. And we were soaked and it was cold and it kind of sucked and we didn't see any animals and it was just a bad day um, overall. But it was the only, we had been trying to do it for a while and it was the only day that worked. So that didn't, that didn't go well, but the other couple of times I've done it is I've really like, even on public land, like I've had friends come that are hunters and they'll come hunt with me on public. And we'll just, I'll say to them, do you want to just see deer or do you want to maybe see a giant buck? Like mm-hmm. there's two options there and, and they're different scenarios. And when some of them say just see deer, like they'll get, they'll get out of the stand, you know, I'll point them in the right direction. I'll be like, Hey, set your stand up right here, go in, you know, blah, blah, blah. They'll get out and they'll be like, dude, I saw nine deer tonight. Like I don't even see that many deer on my own public, like, or on my own private land. That was an awesome night, you know? And it's, it's, and, and it makes it, they didn't kill anything or anything like that, but it just makes it enjoyable on good weather and you're seeing deer and it's a good time in the woods. Like that's essentially how I would think about it is that it's your opportunity to lose at that point. Sure. I agree. You know, like you've already won by uh, getting them to agree to go now. Just don't fuck it up. Yeah. 100%. (laughs) No. Yeah. Like, like how I, I love what you said about letting them choose their adventure, right? Like let them choose, you know, like what's important to them and, and then help them fulfill that. And, and I, again, I, 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 that's a great starting place. And from there, you know, I think the, you just keep, keep growing the interest, keep, keep helping them have those experiences. Um, I'll tell you, I've, I've introduced two friends of mine, both of them in the military, um, to hunting. Um, one of them uh, through turkey hunting and the other one through uh, through deer hunting, um, and they uh, the 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 emotion that you know that they experience it's crazy. I mean, and I, and, and I think you understand this as a uh, as a father, um, especially as your child gets older. Um, my that daughter that I was talking to you about um, that, that started the book, you know, yeah she's my she's also my fishing buddy um and we've we've gone on three fishing excursions uh, so far together um tarpon um uh, yeah tarpon Did that pull her in the water <laughs> uh just about yeah but but the funny thing about her is like she's my lucky charm like whenever we go fishing we we strike and but the 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 other unique thing is, is she always outfishes me always <laughs> and 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 i can't tell you how awesome that is like it's so much better to watch your daughter catch a 65 pound king salmon and outfish you than it is for you to catch the you know 67 yeah. pound king salmon like i was more proud of her than i would have been if i had got a bigger fish well anyway it's that same feeling when you introduce a friend to hunting, right? Like mm-hmm. sitting there calling in a turkey for your, you know, for somebody that, you know, and watching them go through the steps, follow your instructions, squeeze the trigger, and then be there. Like they're, 
it's a greater feeling than if you'd got the bird yourself, I promise you. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot out there for you, for, for people um, who, you know, are listening to this. I, I hope that they'll um, take the challenge. I hope that they'll, you know, think about any millennials that they might know um, and start them off with baby steps. But uh, I promise you, it'll be really, really rewarding for both of you. If you, you know, yeah. if you no, and that's, yeah, you remind me of a point as I, I mentioned, like I open with, I'm after clean organic meat and whatnot, when I'm talking to somebody that I don't know if they're a hunter or not, then I will say back to them, do you, do you hunt at all? No, no, I don't. You know, I just, it's not something that my family's ever done or anything. Well, and then I'll say, well, if you're ever interested, man, I'd be happy to take you out. And if, and if you get something, we can definitely package it up and you know, and then you don't have to pay, you know, X amount of dollars and pretty much a deer will feed you alone for probably like four or five months. So, you know, and that's, and then I just leave it at that. And then the invitations on the table, you know? Um, and it's, to me, it's well, it's well worth it. I, I, I have a philosophy on, on my private and my public is that it's just in my head that so much of it comes down to right place, right time that if I set them up in a stand and they're right place, right time, man, that's fate. That's fate for them. Yeah. You know, and they're just in it kind of like, they're that lucky charm. And it just wasn't in the cards for me that day. I had my pick of the stands and I put this guy in the stand and he got a great Mm -hmm. dough and it's awesome and everything's great. Or you got a great buck, whatever it is. But, um, but yeah, it's just fate at that point. Um, The other thing, public land's a little bit different because then they can go whenever they feel like it and they start yeah. taking over your spots or your areas, um, which I, I have had an experience with that. Um, and I wasn't too excited about it. The guy <laughs> texted me like two years later. He's like, dude, I went out to our spot and there was a guy in it. And I'm like, what do you mean our spot? I took you there once, <laughs> you know? Um, but anyway, the, uh, the um the other side that you mentioned is turkey hunting yeah. man getting out turkey hunting calling hearing them call just that excitement of being like oh my god there's a gobble like yep. you know people don't experience that in the no. everyday life now like yeah. they don't like, people don't hear that you know when they're driving to work and sitting in their office and driving home i mean no, just it- hearing that can be a victory Sure. When you're sitting there calling, I mean, you, you are having as synthetic as it is, you're having a conversation with a wild animal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I'm sitting here all camouflaged up, up against a tree, you know, got my box or whatever it is. And I'm, I'm clucking or I'm purring or whatever. And I know there's, you know, I know there's a Tom on that other side of that Ridge. And then I hear that gobble right like it shoots like i get chills now just talking about it but it shoots you know it shoots uh shivers up your spine when it happens and and like how many people get to experience like talking to an animal in their native tongue right right like like yeah you're right like that should be off the charts exciting for most of these for most non-hunters like what a great way to get them excited about it Mm -hmm. yeah Exactly. And, and no one's like, the only thing about turkeys is very few people are like defensive of their turkeys. Like they are a 150 inch buck or something. 
Right. You know, like that's, that's the other reason I, I encourage people to do turkey hunting is a like, yeah, you got to get up early, but generally the weather's nice. You do need to like spray them down for ticks or figure out a, a situation for that. If you do have ticks at the time, but other than that, you know, I mean, it's getting them up early, getting them up, hearing all those gobbles in the dark, setting up on them, waiting for that sun to rise, talking back to them, you know, and you're done relatively early through, through the day, unless you want to hunt all day, but then you have the afternoon naps and hanging out. And it's just, it's in general, it's a turkey hunting is a good time. And it's much more real. It seems to me, at least it's much more relaxing than deer hunting because you put so much pressure on yourself during deer hunting. Um, versus turkeys are just like ah those bastards went the other way this time you know or whatever it is uh, i do think that it's an easier an easier hunt to do with a partner right like yeah like you can do deer hunting with a partner but you know again like if you're if you're sort of emotionally attached to the outcome you, you know you might get a little bit bristled if some you know if you're the guy in the tree stand with you or beside you or a couple of trees over is too noisy or too inexperienced, whatever. Yeah. Doesn't see something that, that, that might, but, but turkey hunting actually is better with a partner, right? Like you can set him up like, okay, you sit on this tree. The turkey's going to come from that Ridge. I'm going to go over here behind you, you know, and, and it, it works better that way. So right. I, yeah, I think it's a great sport to, to yeah. new hunters too. Yeah. The other big piece there that I just thought of is, um, is the, the ease of access and, and ease of financial cost on a turkey hunt versus a deer hunt. Um, because a, it's just easier. Like you don't need any, you really don't need a whole lot of specialized camo for turkey hunting. I mean, you need, you need camo, but it doesn't have to be, you know, some late winter, you know, super thick camo. Yep. And you just wear whatever and throw some camo over it. Cause generally you're in warm weather yep. and all you need is a shotgun, you know, yep. and right. You can get a shotgun for 300 bucks or you can just, you can take one out into the woods with you. Both of you practice with it and just yep. say, Hey, you're the shooter yep. this and time. I'll, and I'll call you shoot. And then we'll yeah. And the, yeah. And, and maybe next time we'll do the other way around, whatever it is, you know, it's the entry to ba- the barrier to entry is just much lower. Very low. Um, yeah for turkey hunting than it is for and for deer hunting and the other big thing is that like you can actually get up and like you don't have to sit still in the same spot all day like you can get up and move and reset and get up and move and reset and it's not like it's not so boring you can actually chase a little sure. bit more yeah, with turkeys I, than you can with deer it's delicious yeah. yeah it is it is turkeys are very delicious man and turkey yeah. nuggets are one of my favorite um <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, bringing, bringing new people in with turkey season around the corner and in, I mean, in, in Wisconsin where I'm at, you know, we have, I think six seasons, A through F and pretty much in certain zones, F tags are on almost unlimited. Mm-hmm. So you can go, you, you know, 10, 15 bucks and you're just buying tags. So you can go as many times as you want for that sense, um, in that perspective. Um, Yeah. No, I think, uh, is there anything else you want to touch on with that? I mean, we're at like, I don't know, an hour and 15 or so, something like that. Yeah, no. Um, just, I think I hit most of my highlights just again. Um, 
really passionate about the idea of uh, of sharing hunting with with your non-hunting friends and family. I would like to encourage your listeners uh, to to really think about this. I guess I'll, I'll sort of end on on this note too, and that is that like I think we're at a time, you know, and I don't, I certainly don't want to. I guess touch any nerves here, but we're we're definitely at a time where you know political uncertainty is at an all seems to be at least at an all time peak, at least for my lifetime, and um, and I don't want to play the doomsday card, but if you think again about that that statistic that thirty percent of hunters are you know sixty five and older. Um, that's a lot of hunters to lose in the next 10 years. And if we don't do whatever we can to, to increase those numbers and replace lost hunters, I, I, I worry and, I, and I, I shudder to think what, will, what could maybe eventually happen to a sport and a lifestyle when you know, there's fewer than 10 million people in the entire country that even participate in it. Um, right. You know, there's, there's hardcore hunters out there who who will tell me who, you know, who, who've confronted me. And, and when I've told them this and they say things like, well, great, you know, you know, the, the fewer, the better, that means more land for me, more tags for me, more trophies for me. And I just, you know, I think like that, again, that's such a, that, that's, that's the same sort of singular, narrow, shallow thinking that the anti-hunters were given my daughter, right? Like you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you might want to take a much broader approach, bud, because <laughs> you, you know, nothing is politically safe in this country. You know, um, I know it might be hard to fathom and I don't want to fathom, but, but, but nothing's protected. Um, I'd hate to, I'd hate to see. No, not, yeah. And nothing, nothing is, pre- I mean, nothing is guaranteed. Yep. You know, and you can, I mean, and this is another, this is, this, there's definitely holes to this argument that I'm about to put forward here, but the general premise is there. And that is in the hunting community in Colorado, they did not want wolves reintroduced. Right. And they literally put it to a vote and they got outvoted. Mm -hmm. And now wolves are being introduced into Colorado. Like, I mean, that is, that is a reality that is, that happened. It is fact and it is out there now. Um, and like I said, there's, there's, there's a lot of different things going on there, but the fact of the matter is that most hunters in Colorado didn't want them and it happened and maybe next year or in five years or in 10 years, you know, most hunters don't want, uh, tag allotments to go down Well, they put it to a vote and now you know, there's less, now there's not as many tags given out. Yeah. And then what, and you know, and, and where does, where does it end? And I'm not, I'm not playing doomsday card either, mm-hmm. but I am saying that, you know, 10 million hunters out of 350 million people Pretty were scary. a massive minority. Yeah. Massive, you're right. <laughs> you know, and, and, and just, you know, just because it's, our way of life doesn't mean everybody else sees it the same way. So we always have to put on our best face when talking to those non hunters and the more hunters we can introduce the, I mean, really you've seen it over the course of history is the more money and more hunters that have come into conservation, the more game there is because more people want it. 
more people oh, yeah. want it there to hunt. So I know, I know there is a selfish mindset of, of, well, you know, I don't want any more hunters cause there's already too many, um, out here, but at the same time, those hunters are what those additional hunters are, what is ensuring the fact that you just even get to keep hunting in the first place. Yep. You know, um, and that's, uh, you know, I'm a proponent of that as well, obviously that I, I really think in my, my biggest concerns for the future of hunting is that those 30% baby boomers, um, they were much more involved in community and real like social aspects and, and holding, you know, political positions than my age class of millennials that are more concerned about how many likes we got on Facebook yesterday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we're not nearly as interested in politics. Um, I mean, some of us are for sure, but it's just, it's, it's, that's my perspective. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's just my perspective. Um, And I just feel that that's, that's my biggest concern is that we don't, we don't, continue to have people in political positions that support hunting. Right. Um, and that's something that we need to support. You know, when we go to the polls every year is, is look at people who do support hunting or are hunters mm-hmm. and know that if something comes up where someone is trying to, you know, ban bear hunting or ban bobcat hunting or you know, ban bunny hunting because they have a pet rabbit or something like that and they got a hair up their ass. I think it's a, I just read an article yesterday, I think uh, bear hunting, uh, I think is on the ballot right now in California. Oh yeah, yeah, that is, that's true. I, I, I thought I saw this, I'm pretty sure I saw the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it's just, uh, it's a tough, it's a tough scenario for people who want to hunt. I mean, California is like, I mean, they're ready to just ban hunting in general. And it's funny because in California, like they ban mountain lion hunting and then they pay people essentially under the table to go kill mountain lions. Cause there's, too yeah, many yeah, lions. no, yeah. Like, the the, the general population, the general population, that's the funny thing again. So it comes back to giving facts and information, right? So yeah, if you were to talk to someone, they'd be like, see, you know, we banned mountain lion hunting and there's no problem. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, your There's government's paying people to go kill them yeah. and not eat them. Just leave them lie. They go yep. shoot them and walk away. Yep. You know, so, congratulations. You or, did a great it. thing for the mountain lion population. Yeah. Or do it in a helicopter. Right. Yeah. Dollars. So now, now it's again. So we talked about the financial thing on a personal or family level, but now talk about it as a tax, a taxpayer level, right? Because now... Now I'm paying money to solve the problem. Whereas if I had just embraced hunting, the government would have been earning money to solve the problem. Would be at the exact same place, but money ahead. Exactly. (laughs) It's like urban, that's like urban hunting, you know? Oh, huge fan. Yeah. Urban, urban hunting in DC and, and airports. Like I had a friend, um, I, I was at a friend's house one time and, this dude came over and, and I asked him what he did. And he said, well, for the last, you know, six months, uh, he contracted with, he was an ex military guy. He contracted with, um, uh, some federal wildlife agency or something like that. And he's like, I would drive around to airports in the Midwest and shoot deer at mm-hmm. night 
with a spotting scope and or a spotlight and then you know go on and i was like well that one that must have been pretty darn cool he's like it was cool for like a week and then yeah. you're just like you're walking around i mean you're just driving around shooting animals just and slaughtering. Them alive. yeah yeah there's no again see he we talked about that that emotional connection when yeah you, when you harvest for your family after you put in all that work see that's the one thing he lost right right he didn't have that emotional there's i know this is a bit of a tangent but there was a a west point um professor by the name of uh, lieutenant colonel dave grossman who wrote a book called on killing um it studied the psychology of killing and uh it, it's fascinating because there's a hunting connection he goes back and looks at the history of of the efficiency of of our killing from the revolutionary war forward and so it talks about that it talks about the emotional connection that the that we had as a civilization you know back in the 1700s and 1800s to the act of taking a life you know it was a serious deal um because you so, had to do it with your own hands pretty much yeah exactly and so that gentleman that you're referring to he lost that and so yeah he was just a mercenary mm-hmm didn't mean yeah, essentially yeah. yeah yeah for sure there's a there's a huge difference in sending a bullet at at an animal or a person in that case from a thousand yards versus choking them out to death yeah you know I, like that's a massive emotional connection and that's something you know i went i lived in australia for six months and i met and i gotta have this guy on the podcast his name's joe and he uh he's like a real life crocodile dundee type dude mm -hmm. and we would we would catch pigs his dogs would bay up wild pigs and the first time we did it i was expecting him you know to pull out a gun or something and shoot the pig and he would literally just grab it wrestle it to the ground and then slit Stand its throat up. and that was just something that i had never seen in my life and was really interesting to me um, and then the first time I ever did it, it was a massive emotional, like, uh, connection different. It was like, I, I don't even know how to explain it. It was just, uh, it's something that you don't even know what it is until you do it. And you're like, damn, that is, in it's intense. It's really intense. It's intense. Yeah. Um, and it's, and I'm sure it gets easier with time. Like Joe does, Joe just is thinks it's you know part of everyday life but for me never doing it before that was that was intense which is something i highly recommend you don't do with a new hunter yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. that's not the crawl phase <laughs> right yeah that is definitely not the crawl phase that is that is going that is skipping crawling walking and running and that is Dead jumping sprint. right into levitating <laughs> and flying <Yeah. laughs> um but uh but yeah, hey, Matt, thanks for being on. We're at like an hour and a half here, so I'm going to cut this off. Thanks for being on. Where can uh, where can people find you if they want to find your book or if they want to just interact with you and talk to you about bringing people into hunting? Yeah, great question. Um, you can find me on, on Facebook. I have a Billy Goes Hunting Facebook page. I also have Billy Goes Hunting on Instagram. And uh, the book can be found uh, at Amazon uh, in both versions. Perfect. Awesome. And again, it's Billy goes hunting. So I will certainly buy that for my kid um, Thanks, for sure. All right. Thanks for being on Matt and yeah. uh, stick around. I'm going to just stop the recording and we'll have a chat afterwards, but um, 
for everyone else, really appreciate you listening. Thanks for following along. And if you have any questions for me or for Matt, um, or you are a new hunter, you know, a new hunter or something like that, and you want to go hunting and you want some tips from me or help from me, or if you're in Wisconsin, you want to hit me up. And I do have a couple Turkey licenses and I'd be happy to take anybody else out with me, Turkey hunting. If you're having a hard time, um, if you can get uh, zone one or zone two tag, um, I definitely have some spots. So hit me up on Instagram or find me on Facebook, probably Instagram. Um, or you can always email me and that's at hellera90 at gmail.com. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. Catch you next time.